the tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own, for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone. Sun Tzu was a native of the Qi state. His art of war brought him to the notice of Ho Lu, king of Wu. Ho Lu said to him, I have carefully perused your thirteen chapters. May I submit your theory of managing soldiers to a slight test? Sun Tzu replied, You may. Ho Lu asked, May the test be applied to women? The answer was again in the affirmative, so arrangements were made to bring out 180 ladies of the palace. Sun Tzu divided them into two companies and placed one of the king's favorite concubines at the head of each. He then bade them to all take up spears in their hands and address them thus, I presume you know the difference between front and back, left hand and right hand? The girls replied, yes. Sun Tzu went on, when I say, eyes front, you must look straight ahead. When I say, turn left, you must face towards your left hand. When I say, turn right, you must face towards your right hand. When I say, about turn, you must face right around towards your back. Again, the girls assented. The words of command having been thus explained, he set up the halberds and battle axes in order to begin the drill. Then... To the sound of drums, he gave the order, Right turn! But the girls only burst out laughing. Sun Tzu said, If words of command are not clear and distinct, if the orders are not thoroughly understood, then the general is to blame. So he started drilling them again, and this time he gave the order, Left turn! Whereupon the girls once more burst into fits of laughter. Sun Tzu said, if words of command are not clear and distinct, if orders are not thoroughly understood, the general is to blame. But if his orders are clear, and the soldiers nevertheless disobey, then it is the fault of their officers. So saying, he ordered the leaders of the two companies to be beheaded. Now, the king of Wu was watching the scene from atop a raised pavilion, and when he saw that his favorite concubines were about to be executed, he was alarmed and hurriedly sent down the following message. We are now quite satisfied as to our general's ability to handle the troops. If we are bereft of these two concubines, our meat and drink will lose their savor. It is our wish that they shall not be beheaded. Sun Tzu replied, Having once received His Majesty's commission to be the general of his forces, there are certain commands of His Majesty to which, acting in that capacity, I am unable to accept. Accordingly, he had the two leaders beheaded, and straightway instilled the pair next in order as leaders in their place. When this had been done, the drum was sounded for the drill once more, and the girls went through all the evolutions, turning to the left or the right, marching ahead, wheeling back, kneeling or standing, all with perfect accuracy and precision. 
not venturing to utter a sound, when Sun Tzu sent a messenger to the king, saying, Your soldiers, sire, are now properly drilled and disciplined. They are ready for your majesty's inspection. They can be put to any use that their sovereign may desire. Bid them go through fire and water. They will not disobey. The king replied, Let our general cease drilling and return to camp. As for us, we have no wish to inspect the troops. Thereupon Sun Tzu said, The king is only fond of words and cannot translate them into deeds. After that, Holu saw that Sun Tzu was the only one who knew how to handle an army, and finally appointed him general. In the west, he defeated the Chu state and forced his way into Ying, the capital. To the north, he put fear into the states of Qi and Qin, and spread his fame abroad amongst the feudal princes. And Sun Tzu shared in the might of the king. If fighting is sure to result in victory, then you must fight. Sun Tzu said that, and I'd say he knows a little more about fighting than you do, pal, because he invented it, and then he perfected it so that no living man could best him in the ring of honor. Then he used his fight money to buy two of every animal on Earth, and then he herded them onto a boat, and then he beat the crap out of every single one. <laughs> And from that day forward, any time a bunch of animals are together in one place, it's called a zoo! Unless it's a farm! Welcome everybody to the ninth episode of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. And there is no introduction today, just the story that I told you previously. And there's a very clear reason why I opened with this story. And that is that this story is the only direct story about Sun Tzu which comes down to us in all of history. From the time that Sun Tzu actually lived to the time in which we see him appear in Chinese records, about four centuries have passed. Despite this, you can go to any bookstore now and buy his only work for a modest price. That work is, of course, the very famous Art of War. And The Art of War is an extremely famous book. Virtually everyone I know has read, or at the very least heard of, this book. And it's strange to think how little we know about the actual author, that we only have one direct story of his life told to us, and that lack of information combined with the fact that Sun Tzu is such a household name that he takes on this almost mythological property that Sun Tzu wasn't merely a man he was a legend and when you don't have a lot of material to fill in the gaps of what we do know these gaps over time might get filled with facts that are more legendary than embedded in reality so before we actually start talking in detail about the art of war, today's topic for our third engagement episode, I want to have this disclaimer. There is a lot of mystique and unknown quantities surrounding Sun Tzu, more so than any previous figure we've examined so far in this podcast. So keep in mind that Sun Tzu, 
as we know Sun Tzu, may have never existed. He may merely be an author's name or pseudonym put on a book. But even if that's all Sun Tzu was, we can never simply disregard him because his book has influenced so many people throughout the millennia and his quotes will be echoed until the end of our history. Sun Tzu, whatever or whoever he was, has become, like I said before, a legend all on his own. But today, we will find out that there is not just wisdom to be learned in the legend, but the man as well. As far as we can tell, Sun Tzu was born in 544 BC in either the Chinese state of Qin or Wu, and the period in which Sun Tzu was born into was an extremely important one for Chinese history. This period is called the Spring and Autumn Period, a period which lasted from 771 to 476 BC, a period which is associated with great leaps and bounds for Chinese art and culture. After all, this is the period when Confucius enters the historical stage, but also by constant war and instability. Sun Tzu himself was born in a time when China was dominated by no less than seven monarchs. And these seven different states were constantly fighting one another. There were a few states that were more powerful with a couple of smaller filler states existing, but for a long time, none of these states could even hope to overcome any of the other ones. I'm also going to include a map on the website of what exactly China looked like at this time because I have a great deal of difficulty differentiating all these different states unless I have a map of where each and every single one is in relation to the other states. So hopefully it will help ground you in the landscape of China at that time. When we talked about Sun Tzu's birth, the sources disagree in exactly where he was born, whether he was born in the state of Qin or the state of Wu. What we do know, though, is that Sun Tzu eventually did come into the employ of the King of Wu. What's really interesting here is that, according to the history, during the time of Sun Tzu and during the time Sun Tzu was supposedly working for the state of Wu, Wu did pretty well for itself. It looked like they were on the verge of kicking everybody's behinds. After winning a string of dramatic victories, it looked like Wu was going to be the sole ruler of China. Unfortunately, things don't always work out the way we think they're going to in history. After Sun Tzu's death in 496 BC, things went downhill for Wu pretty quickly. Eventually, Wu would be invaded and subjugated by another state, the state of Yue. Yue would grow to become the dominant state in Chinese history, and they would make an attempt at unification. And unfortunately, it didn't work out so well for them either. And true stable unification of the Chinese kingdoms would not be achieved until the Han Dynasty was able to unite all of China in the 200s BC. And of course, the period of Chinese unification under the Han Dynasty is seen as one of its golden eras 
That's the reason we call the dominant ethnic group of Chinese Han Chinese, and why oftentimes Chinese characters are called Han characters. The Han Dynasty also represents the eastern counterpoint to the Roman Empire, both of whom existed at the same time and knew of each other's existence. There's also a famous story of a Roman legion being captured after a particularly brutal battle with the Parthian Empire, and eventually these legionaries would escape and find themselves in the mercenary service of the Han Dynasty. Chinese records do mention a foreign mercenary unit that fought in the Roman style. However, whether or not these were actual Romans, we're not very sure. It's fun to think about, nonetheless. So that's a very brief overview of what Chinese history looked before and after Sun Tzu. I wanted to show the time period that he was born into, as well as some of the after effects of it, and how that may have impacted Chinese history. Before we move on, I want to take some time to talk about what a typical Chinese army of the era would look like. The core of any Chinese army of this time was their chariots. Oftentimes, when you think about chariot warfare, you don't think about China. You think about Persia, you think about Egypt, you think about Celtic tribes, but none of those chariots had anything on Chinese chariots. In fact, the Chinese frickin' loved chariots. So much so, that even when horses were becoming large enough to ride, and replacing chariots on the battlefield as they could accomplish virtually the same task much more efficiently, chariots were still an extremely common sight on Chinese battlefields. So even though essentially they'd become obsolete, these Chinese armies loved their chariots so much that they just couldn't part with them. So what did these chariots look like and operate like? Well, they were far more technologically advanced than Western chariots of the time. And by Western, I do include Persia and Egypt in this analysis. Chinese chariots were more efficient. They had better wheels than Western chariots. Wheels that were stronger, lighter, and had a vastly superior turning radius. So these chariots, they were pretty mobile. As well, horses linked to Chinese chariots were done in a more efficient way. They were linked to the chariot at the breast of the horse versus Western chariots, which would use a yoke. This had a variety of advantages, the two most important being that you were able to link your horses up to your chariots far quicker. As well, this method was less stressful for the horses, so they could pull their chariots for a longer period of time than their Western counterparts. Chinese chariots had cabs that were also larger than most Western chariots, and they were more versatile. So, generally, on these chariots, you'd have three people. You'd have a charioteer in the center, and he's the guy who's driving the chariot. And then you'd have an archer on one side, and then you'd have another guy with a halberd on the other. And if you don't know what a halberd is, it's a very distinct Chinese weapon. It's basically like a spear, seven or eight feet long, and at the tip, you've got about a one-foot jagged cutting edge, which had all sorts of different angles that you could use in a variety of different scenarios. So as a charioter, you could decide if you wanted to have your archer take on people from a distance, or if you wanted to go up and use your halberd against infantry in close quarters combat, or a combination thereof. As well, you could use these halberds to go into hand-to-hand -hand combat 
with opposing chariots, something which has no parallel in Western warfare as chariots would fight each other from a distance with bows and arrows. So anyway, these chariots were very sophisticated and powerful war machines for the time period they existed. And like I said, the Chinese loved them. It was not uncommon to have upwards of 2,000 chariots fighting on these ancient battlefields simultaneously. And just trying to imagine that is is an exercise in and of itself. But to go back to the reason why these Chinese generals loved the chariot so much, it wasn't because of their advanced sophistication. Because at the time, they really didn't have anything to compare it to besides themselves, and they were all at the same level of technology. They loved them because they would symbolize power and prestige and wealth. So despite the fact that many of these officers and generals might have had access to cavalry, they chose to ride in chariots to show off their prestige both to their soldiers and to their enemies. When it comes to the bulk of Chinese armies, they were mostly made up of mass peasant levies using light forms of armor and equipped with that halberd spear. And these mass blocks of peasant levies would be supported by archers, and then shortly after the time of Sun Tzu's death, they would be equipped with crossbows. And even though crossbows were invented in Greece at relatively the same time as they were in China, in China, they caught on like wildfire. While as in Europe, it would take another 1,200 years before the crossbow would become a staple of warfare. So then you would be adding in these massed blocks of crossbowmen, as well as your chariots or cavalry with your peasant levies, and that would kind of give you what a Chinese army of the era would look like. You would open up the battle with your mass blocks of archers or crossbowmen firing at one another, the chariots moving forward, and then of course the infantry coming in to support the chariots. So I hope that gives you some idea of what an ancient Chinese battlefield might look like. But now let's look at the actual art of war itself. And what does the art of war teach us? And if I were to summarize Sun Tzu's philosophy on warfare, I would summarize it in two words. Speed and deception. As well, Sun Tzu marks a very different style in Eastern warfare as in comparison to Western warfare. When you read tomes about Western warfare, you'll always hear about we have to attack always, never ever retreat, never surrender, no matter how awful the odds are against you, you have to fight to the bitter end, and if you do anything less, well, you're a coward, and you failed your state. Sun Tzu, on the other hand, doesn't buy that at all. He's perfectly willing to retreat or not engage in battle if he sees that the odds are against him. Sun Tzu is happy to withdraw and wait for the point that he can favorably engage the enemy. Sun Tzu wants to win, and he wants to win in the most efficient way that he possibly can. Therefore, he's willing to use tricks and diversions which Western generals would look down upon and frown as somehow ungentlemanly or beneath them. But I want to pick up on that idea of winning in the most efficient manner possible. What is the most efficient manner possible? Well, Sun Tzu explains in what might be his most famous quote from The Art of War. Sun Tzu says, To fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists 
and breaking the enemy's resistance without ever having to fight. And when you hear that, that makes perfect sense. However, the way it's portrayed doesn't give you the full context if you read the whole passage. If you just read the passage on its own, it makes it seem like you gotta be this ultimate badass and just come in and stare down your enemies and they just tremble in your wake. They just tremble at the very thought of having to fight you. And that aspect of terror may very well be important in warfare, but terror isn't what Sun Tzu is talking about here. Let me read you the whole passage. Sun Tzu said, In the practical art of war, the best thing of all is to take the enemy's country whole and intact. To shatter and destroy it is not so good. So too, it is better to recapture an enemy army rather than to destroy it. To capture a regiment, a detachment, or company in its entirety rather than to destroy them. Hence, to fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without having to fight. So, with that context, what Sun Tzu is trying to say here is that the most efficient way to win isn't to beat your enemy or to scare them into not showing up, but rather to make those guys work for you. To take their country and their army and their resources and co-op them into your own thus making your own army substantially stronger in the process. And I don't think that there's any question that that is the ultimate goal for every general, is to somehow co-opt the enemy's country into their own without actually having to go there and fight their army to do it. And you might say, that's all well and good, Spencer, but how often does that actually happen? The answer? More often than you would think. I think the best recent historical example of this principle playing out would be in the run-up to World War II, where Hitler was able to annex and co-op both Austria and Czechoslovakia into his country without ever having to fire a shot. And once he annexed those countries, he had full access to their resources, to their industrial capacity, and of course, to their soldiers and military equipment. And that's not to say that I think Hitler is a great general, or that Sun Tzu thinks that Hitler is a great general. I can't speak for Sun Tzu and what he would say. What I can say, though, is that Sun Tzu would probably be in approval of this move by Hitler. I think there's lots of other moves that Hitler made later in his lifetime that Sun Tzu would say, what the hell are you doing, man? But that's a discussion for another time. For now, though, Let's go back and look at those two ideas that summarize Sun Tzu's philosophy on warfare, speed and deception. Let's see what he has to say in this regard. In the very first chapter of The Art of War, Sun Tzu says, All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When we are far away, we must make him believe we are near. Hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder and crush him. If he is secure at all points, be prepared for him. If he is in superior strength, evade him. If your opponent is quick to anger, seek to irritate him. Feign inferiority to encourage our enemy's arrogance. If he is at ease, give him no rest. 
if his forces are united, separate them. Attack when he is unprepared, appear when you are not expected. These military devices leading to victory must not be divulged beforehand. Here, I want to contrast Western and Eastern warfare styles once again. So in ancient Western warfare, this deception and trying to pull the wool over your enemy's eyes was not predominantly featured. When we think of the Roman Empire, they were terrible at deception in their battles. They were successful not because they used the art of war, but because they had the most advanced and powerful military of the age. As well, they were pretty comfortable with losing and then replacing that army with another one. So it didn't matter if you defeated the Romans, they would just keep coming. And that dogged determination, combined with their military prowess, created the Roman Empire we know today. What's interesting though, is when you look at the instances where the Romans were badly defeated, they were defeated by armies who were using the tactics of Sun Tzu. Two great examples of this would be the Battle of Lake Trasimene. This was a battle during the Second Punic War against Hannibal, and this battle took place after Hannibal had crossed the Alps. So first, Hannibal had encouraged his enemy's arrogance because he knew all these Roman commanders were very aggressive and very hot-headed, and he would use that mercilessly to his advantage. So he got these Romans all fired up to come out and get him. And then he was able to use deception to make his forces seem farther away than they really were. Then Hannibal hid all his troops in a nearby forest along the route the Romans would have to march to get to where they needed to be. This place was an even better ambush spot because on the other side of the road, there was a lake, Lake Trasimene. So the Romans, when attacked, would have nowhere to go. So while the Romans were all spread out, marching along this road, not expecting Hannibal's forces, all of a sudden, Hannibal's forces emerge from this forest, pour down the hill, and completely crush the Roman army. And I think this battle is a great representation of what Sun Tzu meant put into practice. In fact, Hannibal utilizes a variety of Sun Tzu's tactics throughout his career. In fact, he even at some places exceeds the rules of the art of war, the Battle of Cannae being a perfect example of that. Regardless though, Hannibal is a great person to study to help enhance your understanding of the art of war and seeing some of these principles actually playing out in reality. The second battle I wanted to look at was the Battle of the Teutoburg Forst, another battle in which the art of war was used against the Roman Empire. So, in this battle, a man named Arminius, a German in the service of the Roman Empire who didn't really support the Roman Empire. In fact, he supported the German tribes far more. Arminius was able to get the trust of the Romans, serving as sort of a guide and liaison between the German tribes. Eventually, Arminius would lead this poor Roman magistrate by the name of Publius Quintilus Varus on a death march, with Varus completely in the dark of what the future had in store for him. Arminius led Varus and his legions deep into the German forest, to a specific point in which he had thousands of German tribesmen waiting to ambush the legionaries. At their appointed time, the German tribesmen sprang out of the forest and ambushed and destroyed 
these Roman legions. Varus was, of course, killed in the process, and it was considered one of the most devastating defeats ever to happen to the Roman Empire. Augustus, who was the emperor at the time, was said to have never gotten over this defeat, and even as an old man, he would wander around and abruptly slam his fist on the table and shout, Quintilus Varus, give me back my legions! A great story, no doubt. But eventually, Western armies would learn the benefits of deception and misinformation for the enemy. For example, in World War I, you would see Western generals paint trenches and fake artillery placements in order to fool observation planes flying overhead as to the army's true positions. And in World War II, Dwight Eisenhower manufactured an entire inflatable army and stationed it in order to fool Hitler into thinking that the Allies would conduct the D-Day landings in the Netherlands rather than in Normandy. So it took a while, but eventually the art of war would become accepted practice in the West. But now, let's talk about that speed. Sun Tzu said, In the operations of war, where there are in the field a thousand swift chariots, and as many heavy chariots, a hundred thousand mail-clad soldiers, with provisions enough to carry them a thousand li, the expenditure at the home front, including the entertainment of guests, small items such as glue and paint, and some spent on chariots and armor, will reach the total of a thousand ounces of silver per day. Such is the cost of raising an army of a hundred thousand men. When you engage in actual fighting, if the victory is long enough in coming, the men's weapons will grow dull, and their morale dampen. If you lay siege to a town, you will exhaust your strength. Again, if the campaign is protracted, the resources of the state will not be equal to the strain. Now, when your weapons are dulled, your morale dampened, your strength exhausted, your treasure spent, other sovereigns will spring up and take advantage of your weakness. Then no man, however wise, will be able to avert the consequences that must ensue. Thus, though we have heard of the stupid haste in war, cleverness has never been associated with long delays. There is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. It is only one who is thoroughly acquainted with the evils of war that can thoroughly understand how to profit by waging it. The skillful soldier does not raise a second levy. Neither are his supply wagons loaded more than twice. In war, let your great objective be victory, not lengthy campaigns. Thus, speed is the essence of warfare. What's interesting, though, is that when I quote this phrase, there is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare, people will dispute it. They'll come and say, Spencer, didn't America benefit from a prolonged war in World War II? And they did, in one sense, benefit from the war in Germany being protracted enough to the point where Japan would attack and the United States could enter the war and thus, after the war, become the world's greatest superpower. But Sun Tzu's not talking about that. He's talking about the actual fighting, the actual cost of war in order to achieve victory. And you should keep that at an absolute minimum. I'm sure the Americans would have been much happier to have defeated the Axis in 1942 
rather than in 1945. Thus, all the materials, all the manpower, all those human lives lost in those three years would still be with us today. Well, maybe not all of them today. It has been a long time since then, but you understand what I mean. Sun Tzu here is saying that if you need to fight, swift, decisive action is the best way to do it. And the only way you're going to be able to accomplish that is if your army is able to move swiftly and efficiently towards its needed objectives. Thus, the saying, speed is the essence of war. I want to wrap up this episode by looking at why the art of war is so pervasive even to this day. I hope that by listening to this podcast, you'll understand that the art of war just doesn't lay out a list of tactics to use on an actual battlefield. It encompasses far more than just the battlefield. It encompasses the logistics of war, the economics of war, and the philosophy of not just war, but of conflict. And because the art of war speaks about things beyond the battlefield, its wisdom can be used beyond the battlefield. Its wisdom can be used in our everyday lives. Let's take this quote, for example, and apply it to our modern life today. Another extremely famous quote from The Art of War. Sun Tzu said, If you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, think about how we can apply this in our everyday lives. Let's talk about searching for a job, for example. If you understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and what you can offer an organization that would choose to hire you, that's all well and good. That's extraordinarily important. But if you know about the company you're going to be applying for, if you know what they look for in employees, if you know the culture, if you know one of the managers or the heads of the company, then in applying for that job, your odds are going to be far greater that you will actually receive it than if you just knew yourself. If you knew neither yourself or the company, then you're not going anywhere. Or how about dating? If you understand yourself, and the strengths and weaknesses you have in a relationship, as well as you understand the personality, the likes and dislikes, the future ambitions of the person you're pursuing, then you will be far more likely to be successful in your pursuit rather than if you just knew yourself. Or how about the best place this analogy can be used is in sports. So I'm going to use a sports analogy for the only sport that I actually enjoy which is baseball. So I'm sorry if you're not a baseball fan or don't particularly understand how the game is played. Unfortunately, it's all I got. So let's say you're a major league pitcher and you have a wicked curveball that always skirts the outside of the plate at just the last second. That's all well and good. You can rely on that pitch. However, as a pitcher, you also have to understand what the batter's strengths are. And a good pitcher will do research on the opposing team and know the opposing team's batter's strengths and weaknesses. So, for example, if you're facing a batter who is extremely strong at hitting pitches on the outside corner of the plate or is extremely adept at following and hitting curveballs, then you might not want to use your signature pitch. 
you might want to change things up a bit. And if you had done your research going into the game, you would know where to place your pitches and where not to place your pitches depending on the batter you were facing. But if you didn't do your research and just relied on your wicked curveball, that's going to get you some success. However, when you face that batter who is prepared for you, he's going to crush you. Let's take another quote from The Art of War. The victorious strategist only seeks battle after the victory has been won, whereas he who is destined to defeat first fights and afterwards looks for victory. So with this quote, we can garner the importance of advanced planning, of knowing what you're going to be up against before you get there, and only engaging in those circumstances when you know you have a high probability of success, rather than if you just go in blind, your probability of success is far lower. So let's say you're trying to apply for a college scholarship, and you need to write an essay to get that scholarship. If you just write an essay and submit it, who knows what's going to happen. But if you spend time finding other submissions, talking to people, learning exactly what they're looking for in that essay, and then you write it, well, you're going to have a high likelihood of getting that scholarship. The last aspect I want to talk about here is the importance Sun Tzu puts on allies. Later in The Art of War, Sun Tzu stresses the importance of finding as many allies as you possibly can and converting them to your side. And this just highlights the importance of gathering together like-minded people to achieve a goal. You're going to be far likelier to achieve that goal when you're surrounded by people who are supporting you rather than if you're just embracing your struggle alone. And that's just a handful of quotes from The Art of War. There is so much more wisdom in there and so much more knowledge that is applicable to your everyday life. And I know in this engagement episode, we didn't spend a lot of time actually reading from The Art of War in comparison to some of our other previous episodes. But because The Art of War is so famous, I wanted to focus on more how the principles of The Art of War have played out in history and how its principles are still applicable to us today. It doesn't matter if you're a general or not. It doesn't matter if you're a student or not. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, black or white, young or old, gay or straight. The art of war has something to teach you in your everyday life. The legend of Sun Tzu lives on and will continue to live on probably as long as humans are around. And regardless of whether or not Sun Tzu was a real person, The Art of War remains an extremely pivotal work about not just the philosophy of warfare, but the philosophy of human beings as well. Remember, The Art of War is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Welcome everybody to the second segment of Na Plus Ultra. I hope you enjoyed the first one, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening. But now, it's time for the second segment, where we discuss topics and issues brought forth by you, the listener. But before we get there, 
it's time to talk about some current events. And this time, we don't have any primary to talk about. We will have a primary coming up this weekend, and it's going to be exciting. I'm talking about the Nevada caucuses this Saturday, and I'm predicting another nail-biter, so it'll be a fun time. But this time, we're going to be talking about another election that's happening in the world, and that is the Irish general election. So, the actual election is going to happen on the 26th of February this year, of course. And, when I started learning about the election, it's pretty interesting. The most interesting part is that the current government of Ireland is a coalition of left-wing and right-wing parties. The larger of these two parties is a right-wing party called Fine Gael. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly. Currently, they own 66 seats in the legislature, and they are supported by the second-place left-wing party, the Irish Labour Party, who have 33 seats in the legislature. And as far as I know, the Irish Labour Party and the English Labour Party are unaffiliated with one another, but I could be wrong. And if I am wrong, somebody please let me know. So the current leader of Ireland, and the leader isn't a prime minister, he holds a title called Tisha, which is the Irish word for chief. So henceforth, we shall refer to him as the chief of Ireland. So the current chief of Ireland is a man by the name of Enda Kenny. And Enda Kenny is running for his second term as leader of the Fingal Party. I'm just going to call it the FG Party from now on. In 2011, the FG Party overcame the Finna Fail Party. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um... The poor Irish guy who is asking me to cover this election is probably crying right now over my terrible pronunciation. But anyway, they overcame the Finnefell party, who was a populist conservative party. The FG party, on the other hand, describes itself as a liberal conservative party, which is quite unusual for a political party. So anyway, the FG party is running for its second mandate and is currently supported by the Labour Party. We already briefly talked about the third party in the legislature, which currently controls 21 seats, the Fianna Fáil party. And there's one more party in the equation here, and that is the Sinn Féin party, a very important party in Irish history, who played a pivotal role in releasing Ireland from the British Empire. They are a left-wing Irish Republican party. And I don't mean Republican in the sense of the American Republicans. I mean Republican in the sense that they're strong Irish nationalists. So now we kind of know the players, the four main parties in this contest. I, by the way, really wanted to watch some of the Irish leaders' debates. Unfortunately, I couldn't find them anywhere. So I haven't been able to get a real close-up and personal feel for any of the candidates and their specific talking points and messages as of yet. So, before we move on, I want to talk about two things. First off, who's winning right now in this horse race, and how does the Irish electoral system work? So, according to the polls, it looks like the FG party is on track to win the most seats. However, they are pulling at a lower level than they did in the 2011 general election. Currently, the FG party is pulling at between 28 and 26% in comparison to their 2011 finish, which had them at 36%. So a significant drop, but still enough to be the overall most popular party in Ireland. Labour, on the other hand, 
looks like they're going to get completely slaughtered in this election. Currently polling in single digits around 8 or 9% in comparison to their 2011 finish, which had them at just about 20%. The main beneficiary of this shift, however, hasn't been the Finnefall party, which is still polling roughly around what it did in 2011. A couple points better, currently polling at around 18 or 20 points, whereas they finished around 17 points the last time out. The main beneficiary of the labor collapse, it seems, is the Sinn Féin party. It seems that left-leaning Irish folks are abandoning labor for Sinn Féin en masse. Currently, they're polling around 18 or 20 points in comparison to their 2011 finish, which had them only at 10 points. So what looks like will happen is that the FG party will lose their governing coalition. That while they may still win the popular vote and be the largest party, they may not have enough seats in the legislature to remake their previous coalition. So it'll be interesting to see how things pan out as the election is just one week away. So now let's talk about the Irish system of government. Ireland has two houses, a lower house and an upper house, and they both have crazy unpronounceable names. Members of the lower house are not called MPs because this is not a parliament. They are called orectas, and these orectas are designated on a system of proportional representation through a system called a single transferable vote. This method is not a ranked ballot vote. What you do is you vote for the candidate of your choice. And then as time goes on, if your candidate is eliminated or not elected, your vote is transferred to other candidates. And the exact method of this transference depends on the system of government. I'm not entirely sure how it works in Ireland, but ultimately what ends up happening is an election which distributes seats very close to the proportional vote tallies of the population. Essentially, what it means is that even though you may be voting for a candidate who is likely to lose in your constituency, that doesn't mean you've wasted your vote because it will get transferred on to another candidate in your preferred party. So it's a pretty interesting system and it creates a legislature which is based on proportional representation. So there you go. That's your crash course in Irish politics. I can't wait to see how things turn out on February 26th. And now, on to some questions. Jason writes in, Jason! Sorry, that was a weird Pavlovian response there. He writes, Hi Spencer, thanks for the great podcast so far. I'm really enjoying it. I have a very quick and simple question for you. I'm very interested to know what your opinion is on safe spaces. Thanks for reading. Jason! Jason! Sorry, I, I can't say his name anymore. Before I answer this question, I want to recall one of the things I said in the first episode of this podcast, and that is there are certain issues in which I will throw all caution and reason to the wind and have a very high likelihood of losing my cool. Safe spaces are one of those things that I might lose my cool over. They are a concept which I find entirely illegitimate. I'm happy that I was able to get out of university literally just before this kind of stuff started happening on campuses. My campus never had a safe space. We never had any issues with sexual assault or anything like that. 
We never needed mandated equality training. We had all sorts of controversial speakers come to speak on a variety of different issues and overall had none of the issues which seem to plague college campuses right now. So I'm happy I didn't have to endure it. And the best way I can explain my feelings on safe spaces is like this. My grandfather fought in World War II. He was a member of the British Royal Air Force. He was a bomber pilot, specifically. During the Blitz, however, and that is the period in which the Nazis were aggressively bombing London and other British major civilian centers, he wasn't flying planes. That part of his life would come later on in the war. So he was in the same boat as everybody else during the bombings. And when the air raid sirens would sound and my grandpa knew a Nazi attack was coming, he would refuse to go into the bomb shelters with everybody else. He thought it was degrading and demeaning to go underground and be shoved in there. So when the bombs came, my grandfather stayed in his house. He refused to leave his house. He said, if I'm going to die, I'd rather do it in the comfort of my own home with my wife by my side. And he was able to make it out okay, obviously because I'm here right now. So, the way I see it, if my grandfather didn't need a safe space to hide from literal Nazis who were trying to bomb him and destroy everything he knew and loved, I don't need a safe space to hide myself from mean tweets. I don't need a safe space to hide myself from people who disagree with me. I'm stronger than that. We're all stronger than that. So let's embrace the strengths within us and reject this ridiculous idea of safe spaces. And that's all I have to say on that particular topic. But thank you very much for the question, my friend. I really did appreciate it. And I hope that answer was satisfactory. Our next question comes from James Phillips. And James Phillips has some issues with my last episode, and he's been Facebooking me a little bit about them. And I'm sorry I haven't had the opportunity to respond to some of your messages yet, James. It's been another one of those go, go, go types of weeks for me. So I hope to answer them here. James Phillips writes, Although I know it's not the main premise of the last debate episode, I was wondering if having actions determined by some other force is a bad thing or not. Also, I have to call you out about the report which studied determinism. You said that its record of predicting 60% correctly shows that there is a form of free will out there. But doesn't this study show that it's a matter of just using technology and techniques which are still in the phases of advancing? I mean, if we could get to 99%, would that defeat your case? So, the first question is if there is someone determining our actions, is that a bad thing or not? And there's a couple of different variables I think you have to consider. First off, for me personally, I would feel like that's generally a bad thing. I want to be the master of my own domain. I want to make my own decisions based upon my own criteria, based upon logical analysis and reason. I don't want someone coming in and overthrowing my criteria and then making my own decisions for me. That's a very uncomfortable idea for me personally. So right off the bat, determinism does leave a bad taste in my mouth. What's good or bad, however, doesn't revolve around how I feel about things. It's something larger than that. And if there was a deterministic force, 
we'd have to ask ourselves, what is this deterministic force doing? And is it creating benefits within our world? I mean, if this deterministic force is having us do awful things like murder one another, well, not exactly a force for good, is it? But I think there's a larger issue here if we're going to bring morality into this debate as to who decides the moral criteria. If this deterministic force has come in and already determined how we're going to feel, then it has created the moral criteria already. So by definition of its own criteria, it would be a good thing. Or do we as humans independently get to debate what is moral and what is not moral. And if that's the case, then the determinist, whatever this determinist is, is not a very good determinist because it couldn't even determine its own moral criteria. Somehow, that criteria is determined independently. And then we have to ask, who decides that morality? It reminds me of the contradiction Socrates brings up when discussing morality and religion. This happens in the Euthyphro Dialogue where Socrates encounters a compatriot and they have a discussion about what is piety. And Socrates' companion, Euthyphro, says that piety is what the gods love. And Socrates answers with a very pointed question, which to me completely destroyed any link between religion and morality. Socrates asks, do the gods love it because it is pious? Or... Is it pious because the gods love it? So here you're faced with two different choices, and both of them equally as bad if you're trying to argue that the gods, or God in our modern case, determine morality. In the first case, if the gods love it because it is pious, or the gods love it because it is moral, then it is something outside the god or gods that chooses what is moral and what is not moral. That means they cannot be all-powerful. However, if the opposite is true, and it is pious because the gods love it, or it is moral because the god loves it, then essentially God has no criteria for choosing what is moral and what is not moral. The only condition for morality is because God said it, and therefore God can say anything and it will be moral. If the sole precondition for an action being moral is whether God says it is moral or not, that is essentially an arbitrary criteria, meaning anything in the world could be moral. All that has to happen is that God says it is. And I think we all know that our sense of right and wrong, of what's moral and what's not moral, goes a little bit deeper than that. So if you want to put moral judgments on this deterministic essence, whatever it may be, it opens up a very large and complicated can of philosophical worms. So I think the argument over whether or not this deterministic force exists in the first place is a more fruitful one than the morality of this deterministic force. As to your second point, what I would like to say though is that I believe in the podcast I mentioned that even if this machine were able to predict 99% of what you would do, then that wouldn't defeat my case. Because if you argue that it does show that free will doesn't exist, then we have to ask ourselves what is choosing what our brain will and won't do before it becomes conscious. And you're left with two possible options. One 
is that your brain is somehow controlled by a deterministic force, whether that's fate or God or what have you, that is controlling your brain and thus your actions, or you have to argue that your unconscious mind supersedes your conscious mind. And that, I think, doesn't have a particularly strong case either. As we talked about in the last episode, your brain, or let's call it your unconscious mind, maybe that is a, is a clearer definition. Your unconscious mind is like the administrator. It has a lot of important, albeit pretty trivial and mundane tasks to fulfill on a daily basis, while your conscious mind is like the president. It's going to delegate all this unimportant stuff to its administrator, but when an important decision comes up, it's going to make the final judgment call. And if the administrator finds something important enough to send to the president, that doesn't mean it was the one to decide the president's actions. So James, I hope that gave you a little bit of clarification. I know we kind of got into a side tangent about Socrates, but if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll understand that Socratic side tangents are a pretty common thing here. Anyway, James, thanks for the great question. Our last question comes from Rin Matthews, a frequent contributor to the podcast, and I very much so appreciate his contributions, even his continual overusage of straw polls. Anyway, Rin writes, Dear Spencer, in the following century, it seems like millions of people living in the low-elevation coastal environments will be displaced or killed due to global warming. This cloud is not without a silver lining, however. Canada is currently the second largest country in the world, and along with it, Russia occupy huge amounts of near-unlivable land. However, if the temperature of the world were to rise a few degrees, then vast swaths of your country would actually become habitable. My question to you is, do you think the rise in global temperatures will allow Great Mother Canada to be a future superpower with space, resources, and a well-run government? Do you think it's possible for Canada to actually turn lemons into lemonade? Thanks, Rin Matthews. I also like how, at the top, he writes, not a serious question. However, though, I've actually had serious debates about this topic mostly with my friends from Los Angeles. Many of the most important people in my life are from Los Angeles. Of course, my wife is from Los Angeles. My best friend and the person who is my best man at my wedding is from Los Angeles. His parents are friends with my parents, so there's lots of interlocking family parties to go to. But yeah, I don't know what it is. All these people from LA just come into my life and start running it for me. But for those of you who don't know, Southern California, specifically the Los Angeles area, is dealing with a pretty severe drought, which has immeasurable impacts on the agriculture of the region. And the agriculture is plenty in California. In fact, a huge proportion of where we get our food on this continent all comes from California. People worry now, though, that due to this drought, all of this land will become unusable. They worry vast tracts of land will become a desert. And what that means is that agriculture will slowly move northwards. 
I remember when I went to the Museum of Alberta here in Edmonton, there's a map of Canada, and you can watch the environment change over 10,000 years. So 10,000 years ago, you can go back and look at Canada, and it was virtually a sheet of ice, that it was almost entirely covered in ice. And over time, that ice receded and gave way to usable lands. That's why Canada has so many lakes. They're just pools of water that remained after this great ice sheet melted away. So is it logical to assume that eventually Canada itself will warm up, its land become more usable, and that we could be the breadbasket of the continent? I think it's a real possibility. How long it's going to take, though, is anybody's guess. Is it going to happen within our lifetimes? I don't think so. I'm not one of those people who believes vast environmental disasters are headed our way shortly. I certainly do believe in anthropomorphic climate change, but I have friends who constantly ring the alarm bells that, oh my god, the next 50 years, we're done. It's over. We have no hope. I don't fall into that camp. I do think that naturally, over time, we will move to a society of renewable energy sources just because it simply makes way more sense than basing it off fossil fuels. How long that transition process is going to take? Well, your guess is as good as mine. I do have full faith, though, that PMJT is going to take care of it all. He's going to find the least efficient, most expensive way to get there, take a couple selfies, and then bada-bing, bada-boom, he'll have it all sewn up. Now I'm going to get all these angry emails from Canadians calling me a conservative. But if you know me, it's pretty tough to call me a conservative in any way, shape, or form. I just don't like our current Prime Minister's propensity for expensive trips. And then, once he gets there, takes enough selfies to put even the most social media-obsessed teenage girl to shame. Justin Trudeau, actually, just had his first 100 days in office. And, to be honest... So far, my initial optimism mixed in with a bit of skepticism has just melted away into skepticism. So overall, Rin, I would say that yes, global warming might actually benefit Canada more than just about any other country. And I can say with 100% certainty that this climate change will vault Canada into the position of the world's next superpower. And you think we're going to be a benevolent superpower? Guess again. Hold on, world. Canada's coming, and it's not going to be pretty. Thanks for the question, Rin. I hope that was a satisfactory answer. And with that, we are at the end of the ninth episode of Naples Ultra. But before I go, I want to remind you all to follow Naples Ultra on Twitter. The handle is at NPU Podcast. I'm still pretty unadept at using Twitter, I think. I find it the most frustrating of all the social media platforms. And that's mainly because I'm a long-winded and fairly detail-oriented type of guy. And I find it difficult to distill my thoughts into 140 characters. But we are learning, and as time goes on, we will only get better and better. As well, if you appreciated the show, then... I humbly request you donate to us through our Patreon page. Just go to www.npupodcast.com, click on the Support Us page, and you'll have a link to our Patreon account as well 
if you don't want to support the podcast in a monetary fashion, some other avenues which can help to get the word out as well. So we've reached the third episode for the month, so next week we're going to take a little break. During that break, though, I'm hoping to set up the Naples Ultra YouTube channel. And looking at my workload, I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to get everything I want done, done. For the initial phases of the NPU YouTube channel launch, I'm going to start it off by just taking snippets of the podcast that already exist and putting some video footage or image stills to it. So I can do a video such as Naples Ultra on feminism, Naples Ultra on the environment, Naples Ultra on Donald Trump or something along those lines. And this is to try and reach out to the people who are not podcast enthusiasts like you or I. Anyway, on to the point. The point is I'm looking for someone to potentially help me out here. That I'm looking for someone who has a great idea or the ability to edit together a video to go along with snippets of the podcast to go onto YouTube. So this is a call to anyone out there who has video editing experience and is interested in assisting the podcast in some way, shape, or form. If you're interested in helping get this podcast onto YouTube, then please drop me an email. The email is spencer at npupodcast.com as well. Be sure to email me if you want to submit any topic or have any feedback or criticism for the show. Or you can make submissions over Twitter, which is at NPU Podcast. And now for the question of this week. We had lots of great submissions last week, but this week I want to ask a question about the show. I'm curious to know if there's any particular philosopher or piece of philosophical work you guys would like me to look at for an engagement episode of the podcast. So if you think Hegel's really cool or something, or want to learn about John Stuart Mill, or any other person, place, or piece of philosophical work, let me know. I'm interested to see what people want to hear about in the future episodes of the podcast. So that question is again, which piece of philosophical work or particular philosopher or historical figure would you like me to go over in a future engagement episode? And now, let me take you out with the responses to last week's episode. Thank you all very much for listening, and I hope you'll join us two weeks from now for the 10th episode of Naples Ultra. And the topic for this particular episode, I haven't nailed down yet. I've got a couple ideas as of right now, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to go with. So tune in two weeks from now for a surprise. And until next time, you all take care. Matt Benz writes in and says, In Skyrim, I always side with the Imperials, because that thing that Ulrich based his rebellion off, the banning of Talos, was caused by him. If you start a new game and follow the Imperial soldier to Riverwood, the blacksmith tells you a story. The story is about how, although Talos was officially banned as a god after the war, the High Elf's law was never actually enforced. It was only after Ulrich informed the High Elves that the law began to be enforced. Ulrich then used the hatred of the Elves 
and the dissatisfaction with the Empire were now forced to uphold the ban on Talos to start his rebellion. Ulfric was power-hungry from the start and only used the Civil War as a chance to gain more power. The Empire isn't perfect, but at least we know the Emperor actually cares about its civilians and even let the Nords worship Talos after the war. Andre writes in and says, I fully support the Empire, because unlike the Stormcloaks, they bring an element of stability and technological advancement in the region, as well as the increase in standard of living in comparison to the alternative where they can bring further infighting in the region because of the vicious warlords, simply wanting to be top dog wasting resources of a pointless fight, making them more open for invasion of other foreign powers, or an empire reconquest, bringing everything back to square one. Jason writes in and says, Storm cloaks all the way. If a people want freedom, you have no right to ever deny them that. And that's why the Storm cloaks have the higher moral high ground in this conflict.